following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2 today, and if you're new with us, we're studying the life of David, a very full biography given in the Old Testament of a great and important, obviously important man of God. He has the fullest documented biography of anyone in all of the Bible, consuming much of several books. His death doesn't even come by the end of 2 Samuel, but is into 1 Kings. We're not going to cover every paragraph, and that's very evident today as I'm moving through material in chapters 2 and 3, skipping chapter 4 and some material in 5. And that's kind of ambitious, but uh, there are many things of joints in between that I certainly encourage you to read. If you would read those four chapters as your homework assignment, you'd get a fuller picture of a lot of political scheming and violence and bloody murder, believe me, going on behind the scenes, not by David, but by others. Uh, But we pick out a few scenes here today and follow as I read first in 2 Samuel 2. And this is after the death of Saul and David's mourning for him. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to those men and said, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, a son of, Paul, of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now jump to the beginning of chapter 3, just a few verses there. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second was Chiliab 
of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, son of Haggith. The fifth, and let me tell you, sometimes preachers pause over biblical names too. Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Let me jump once more, and we skip all the way over chapter 4, where it primarily tells the death of the puppet king Ishbosheth to the beginning of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and prince over the land. So all the elders of Israel came to, David, uh, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men went to Jerusalem up against the Jebusites, inhabitants of that land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. They were thinking David could not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into this house, but David lived in the stronghold and called it City of David. He built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is God's holy word. I noticed, I think it was about 20 years ago, that the hobby of scrapbooking was really taking off in our country. My daughter became very involved in it and was quite good at it. It seemed it was mostly women who took this up, but it was interesting because I've seen many books and uh, scrapbooks of mementos and family occasions and birthdays and anniversaries and things that were put together in attractive fashion, presenting episodes in the life of different families. Today, I'm undertaking something a bit like that as, as I'm covering, as you've seen, rather big chunks of Scripture from Second Samuel 2 through 5 and leaving out a lot, but trying to give you some highlight scenes to give you a collage or a scrapbook for this particular period of David's life in between Saul's death up until he himself wears the full crown of Israel. I wonder if you've ever been at a crossroads place in your life when you were emerging from a difficult struggle or a tough time, when your circumstances maybe were very restricted for a while, but now suddenly through career or family or marriage or some opportunity, you feel like you're in a wide and good place and things are flowing your way. Perhaps you're an individual who was single for many years and you wondered if 
God would ever bring a spouse into your life and you had a lot of loneliness and maybe some good and bad relationships, but now you're engaged and you think, wow, I'm coming into a a great, new, and hopefully happy place. Maybe you've finished years of higher education and struggling along, paying loans and working away to get through school, and now you're on the verge of actually seeing a career get underway. If you think of David in something like that, here's this time of new opportunity. King Saul is dead. David has lamented him. We looked last time at that epic lament that he gave for for Saul and Jonathan, respecting God's king, even though Saul as a man was not deserving of that respect. And maybe you say, all right, David, you got the lament out of the way. You did the good thing. Uh, It was very nice of you to lament for Saul, your enemy, but now your hour of glory has come. Run up, claim the throne, become the man that God has promised you would be as the great king. Well, instead, 2 Samuel 2 through 5 tells us of David actually taking relatively cautious steps, almost baby steps, not moving rapidly or vigorously at all, but moving a bit by bit as as God leads him to and being king of just one tribe for seven and a half years until the whole kingdom came his way. All around him, events are swirling. The two primary actors are generals of the army. Abner, who was a distant relative of Saul, a very vigorous man who commanded Saul's troops, took a weak son of Saul. Remember, several sons of Saul have already died in battle, but there was actually two left, and you're going to hear about another one with a strange name in a few weeks. But one was left named Ishbosheth a 40-year-old man who apparently was quite weak as a person, but Saul, who was strong, took hold of Ishbosheth. We would call him a puppet king. He put him in place and said, here's your king, son of Saul. And then Abner proceeded to do all the ruling and all the politics and all the fighting. And Abner was a very ambitious man. Against him was Joab, leading the people of David's army, and similar individual, very vigorous, very ambitious. And those two knocked heads and knocked swords and blood was shed and all kinds of things happened that you can read about in between what I read. Well, here was David in the middle of all this, basically waiting on the Lord and waiting for the Lord to open doors. He wasn't forcing things to happen. He wasn't manipulating. He was simply trying to be the man that he thought God had led him to be in that time, in that place. I have a pastor friend who probably, I would say, you know, it could go down and say that there are many pastors who are ambitious. And let's face it, if you're a pastor struggling away in a tiny country church, you have daydreams of, wow, maybe I could be pastor of a big church somewhere. Well, this particular friend of mine had that daydream for a long time, and he had it very openly, and he was always looking and looking and looking, and he finally got a call to a rather large established church. He got what he worked for and and sought, and I'm not saying he sinned necessarily in doing that, and yet within a year and a half of coming to that ministry, that ministry self-destructed. He wasn't ready for what was needed, and maybe he wondered afterwards whether it was his ambition or God's leading that put him there. Psalm 78 beginning at verse 70, has a summary of the Lord's dealing with David and preparing him and moving him in this kind of 
time of his life, where it says there in Psalm 70, the Lord chose David, his servant, took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep, he brought him to be shepherd of his people, Jacob and Israel, his inheritance. So David strengthened his people with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. He led them. David never stopped being a shepherd in God's terms. Yes, he became a king and he lived in a palace and he ruled armies, but his main job description was still to shepherd people of God. I hope in this rather large slice of ancient history today, we're going to see some applications that will help and encourage us in our discipleship among God's people and God's sheep. First of all, as we came to chapter 2, 1 through 11, I think it is headlined by these key words, David inquired of the Lord. All the political tides were flowing favorably in his direction. And we saw times in the past when the tides were not flowing in his direction. And what did he do? He turned to his own intuitions, his own, well, I suppose I should do this, or this looks like the best thing I can possibly accomplish, and did some rather stupid things. Now, with everything going his way, we read in 2.1, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up? Is this the time, Lord? Am I about to be crowned? What do you want me to do? Now, we're not told how God responded. His voice didn't thunder out in the night, whether it was the still small voice or how he sensed that God was leading. Perhaps the priest, Abiathar, was involved as a mediator between David and the Lord. But somehow the Lord affirmed, yes, go up. Where? Hebron. And so you see, David was now following God's instruction and hungry for that instruction. And it was vital for him to seek this guidance as a growing, maturing man of God in a time when things were going well. Do you ever think about when we do all our praying, when things are not going well, right? We're in crisis. Something's falling in, crashing down on our heads, and, oh, Lord, help me. I'll make this bargain with you. I'll always do this. I'll be present at Westminster every Sunday if you just do this. We pray in crisis. We pray when things are going awry. And you know, the interesting thing is that when you're in that crisis, you almost have nowhere to go but upward, even if you didn't pray. I'm not urging that you don't pray in crisis. What I am urging is that you think about the necessity of prayer when you're not in crisis and when things appear to be successful and going well, because isn't that the time when temptations and by paths that are not ordered of God and things that might lead you into something harmful are likely to come? Here was David praying when all success was coming his way. Lord, show me. Protect my steps. Don't let me take a step without you. Instead of making power plays here like Abner and Joab were on the side, and you can read about those, David was making a play of faith. Trust in the Lord. Political and scheming, uh, political scheming was going on around him, but it wasn't of his doing. And it wasn't as if he was sort of secretly manipulating, you know, others to do it, but he just didn't get his fingerprints on it like 
you've often seen there's a great president who's on Mount Rushmore who I don't admire. It's not George Washington, and it's not Theodore Roosevelt, and you, you draw your own deductions, but he was president a long time ago and known as a great writer and a great man of words, but he did an awful lot of dirty tricks as president, always using others to accomplish it so it wouldn't be traceable to him. That wasn't David. He wasn't saying, Joab, you go out there and stab Abner. Joab did that on his own. David was standing at the calm eye of a hurricane. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I think, well describes him at this time. It's where we read that famous passage, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's what was going on for David here. Verse 4 says then that people of his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, just one of the 12 tribes of Israel, came and they said, David, we want you to be king. And they anointed him. Now, remember, Samuel had already anointed and God had already said, David's going to be the king. So it isn't as if this was their idea, but they were now just affirming what the Lord had already said many years earlier. His own tribe naturally were the first to exalt him. And so for seven plus years, he ruled in the town of Hebron, which is kind of southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, And he had a limited reign. It, It doesn't seem to be a time of a lot of battles or a lot of ambitious things going on, but he ruled his own tribe and waited and inquired of the Lord for the next step. Well, secondly, we jump ahead in our scrapbook page turning here to another piece of history in 2 Samuel 3, 1 to 5, and I call this a deep shadow in an hour of triumph. Sadly, it is necessary to point out that while David was maturing spiritually, he was following God's will, he was praying, he was waiting on the Lord, but what chapter 3 has to say in the beginning is not too complimentary, quite frankly. It's a deep shadow in an hour of triumph. What it shows is an all-too-human sinner who, even while he was God's king, executing God's will, was still a weak man. And David's Achilles heel was always women. Always. This list tells us of six wives bearing him six sons. He was getting stronger in general godliness and political power. But look, six sons born to six different wives. The issue, very obviously, is polygamy. Many people read of this in the Old Testament. They say, well, he's not the only patriarch who did that. Abraham, Jacob, you know, they all had all these different wives. And it seems like God never thundered out and said, David, don't you do that. But God didn't have to say that, did he? He had made his will for covenant marriage amply clear from Genesis onward. And when the pattern was broken, we don't have every time the Lord, you know, breathing fire against the one who does it. But what do we have? If you follow it in the Scripture, you see just about every example of multiple wives issuing in great sorrow, division, rebellion, and strife and real negative consequences as you follow it along. Actually, here I didn't read 2 Samuel 3.14 where David demanded that his first wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, 
who had married him, but then Saul took her away and gave her to another man, David said, I want her back. And he probably did that as much to get an edge on Ishbosheth, her brother, as anything else, because there's no great evidence that there was a great love affair between David and Michael. In fact, soon you're going to see the opposite. And another one isn't even in the picture yet, Bathsheba. You know she's coming. David's Achilles heel. Right here in the list of six sons are three, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all of whom lived wickedly and died violently from unions that you would say in the ideal will of God should never have happened. You might think God was just looking the other way or winking and saying, oh, well, okay, boys will be boys. Uh, I understand, David. No. Look at the bitter fruit that comes when God's plan for marriage, one man, one woman for life, is violated. Tragic family consequences are going to shred the future history of David and eventually affect all of Israel from this shadow in his hour of triumph. Well, thirdly then, chapter 5, I read the beginning of that. And again, I know I'm spanning a very big gulp of things here today. But here we see David's coronation and his new capital city. The full crown got set on his head. All the tribes. I didn't read chapter 4. Ishbosheth got murdered in chapter 4. And Abner too was wiped out. So all those that were manipulating and fighting were out of the way. And the tribes were ready to say, David, you're the king. You're the one that we think God wants over us. And they came and submitted to him and put the crown on his head. And so finally, David is, at age 37, king of all Israel, and he remained that until his death at, at the age of 70. Interesting side note here of how he got a most important city as his base. You haven't heard, at least chronologically speaking, you haven't heard the word Jerusalem in the Bible up to this point. Jerusalem was a relatively obscure place, a a town set upon a very fortunate setting. If you've been there, you understand how Jerusalem is set on hills and, and is easily uh, has tall walls and, and ravines and things that can be defended with uh, various defenses. It was originally a little town called Salem. And the people living there were not Israelites. They were another tribe called Jebusites. And they were pretty arrogant folks because they thought, well, we've got this walled fortress, and I know these tribes of Israel are all around us, but they'll never bother us because just let them try to come attack us. The text tells you the Jebusites, basically their theme was the lame and the blind can defend this place. Well, they didn't know that David knew all about the water source of the city of Jerusalem, which was the springs of Gihon connected by a secret tunnel under the walls and up into the city. It doesn't tell us how it was done exactly here, but it's very clear that David knew about that tunnel and David's men went in that tunnel and got into the city. Imagine, here, here are these arrogant guys strolling the walls thinking, nobody will ever take our town, and all of a sudden out of the plumbing system comes David's men. And they overpowered the city with hardly any bloodshed, apparently. And so David now had his capital. And 
we hear for the first time of Jerusalem, which of course will become very important, not just in the Bible itself, but internationally up to our present day. This was the beginning of its importance. It was often called Zion or Mount Zion because of a geographical mountain of Zion there, and that word Zion became a synonym for the dwelling place of God's people. And so we read in 2 Samuel 5.10 that within that stronghold, David became more and more powerful because the Lord God was with him. He was schooled by suffering. Remember, all of his 20s spent as a fugitive fleeing from Saul. But God had shaped him. God had taught him repentance. God had finally taught him to pray, to look for divine guidance. David now was a king serving for the most part under the superior authority of his God. Not perfect, still a sinful man, shouldn't have had all those marriages, but as king he never ceased to be God's spiritual shepherd for his people. I want to give you a few ideas here of application of this text for us. One is certainly that David is a fine model of how to keep our human ambition in check, no matter what field it's in. Now, none of you are aspiring kings or queens, I understand. But whatever it means for you to be elevated, whether you're in your business, in education, in medicine, in law, in whatever you might do in a company, what does it mean to achieve your goals and become recognized? And will you pursue those things by praying dependently and saying, Lord, if you open the doors, I will step through. And if I sense you don't open the doors, I will not try to bang them down and push my way through. Far too often, that's what egotism and pride has us doing, isn't it? We see an opportunity, we say, well, if I made the right maneuver or presented myself in the right way or got somebody to speak for me or sent my resume and padded it a little bit to look better, I could achieve this next step and that would lead to a better step and then I'd be up here. A believer's best wisdom is to wait quietly and allow God to be our campaign manager. Go before us to show us where he wants us to be. One writer in the text said, we never lose anything by trusting God and waiting patiently on him, but we will always suffer by taking things into our own hands and rushing blindly forward. I've found that true. You will too. Another application here, I think, is the idea similarly that David's kingship was never about how great David was. It was about a humble servant, yes, a man of real abilities, a poet, a musician, a warrior, a political administrator, a general of troops, lots of gifts, but nevertheless, a man who would humbly serve the people of God and see that as his main errand. He saw himself as a shepherd, no matter how far God elevated him above those original sheep pens where he started. He saw his task is to be compassionate and wise and discerning in shepherding the people of God. If God has put you in some position of leadership in your career, in the church, do you think about that or do you think more about, oh, isn't it great? I hope everybody's noticing what I've achieved. I hope everybody's noticing how gifted I am. I hope everybody's singing my praise. 
David apparently was never acting that way. He was saying, how can I serve my God and, my, and his people? Third and finally, I would urge a, an application that, that's a beautiful thing out of this passage, and that is the messianic dimensions that are here. Remember, Jesus Christ is the final son of David. He inherited the throne of David, the Bible says. Do you realize how the first David, who was just a man, set the pattern for Jesus Christ, who was so much more than just a man? Because Jesus, too, started out in obscurity in a country village. He, too, was led out into the wilderness for severe testing. He also saw many bitterly contesting his claims and striving against him and maligning him. But God planned for his son to go down very low into the world of men, to die on the cross in a shameful, ignominious place so that he might be raised very, very high. And Philippians 2 says it's because he went low that God raised him high. And he was given a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, David's years of being king only of one tribe, of Hebron, to me typify the stage of things that Jesus Christ is in right now. He, as a matter of fact, Christ is as a truly the king of everything, the king of heaven and earth. He truly rules as the king of heaven and earth. But who sees that? Does the whole world see that and acknowledge it? The people who see it are the people of his church, the called ones who come to him and bow before him and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. We are, as a church, not just this church, but the universal church, the tribe of Judah at Hebron, the only ones who recognize who the king is at the moment. Hebrews 2.8 says, we do not yet see everything put under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15.25 further says, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He's reigning now. But the world at large, let me tell you, people you rub shoulders with every day do not have any notion of King Jesus, ruler of heaven and earth and this universe. They don't have a notion of it. They're just thinking about, well, who is going to be the next president of the United States because that's the most powerful person in the world. No, sir. He or she is not the most powerful person in the world, will not be, cannot be. Jesus Christ is the king of creation and the king of America and the king of all the nations of this world and of time and space. And the question is whether you're part of those who recognize that today. Are you part of the New Testament tribe of Judah, people of faith in the church who bow and say, Christ is my Lord? And I don't put just half a crown on his head. I put the whole crown. And I submit my whole life to him, knowing that he's not an autocratic, tyrannical despot who rules people roughly to get credit for himself or gather riches for himself. He rather is the great shepherd of God whose rule is benevolent and kind and compassionate and merciful. Either Jesus wears this crown in your recognition or you're actually 
still his enemy. You're still an Abner. You're still an Ishbosheth. You're still a Saul, where the king of the universe is concerned. He will not seize that supremacy, but he will woo and call and open your heart and your mind until you too bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, my Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, I pray today that we might think once again of what it means to truly be his subject, not an Abner subject who has his own campaign to vaunt himself up and earn a prime place beside a phony king, but to be those who bow low in true humility, in true faith and thanksgiving before a true king, and say, all right, Lord, you must rule because I can't and I won't, and it won't go well if I am the ruler. Father, help us with our self-examination to all those places where our lives are not yielded to you, where we're not listening, we're not praying, we're not giving you thanks. Teach us, help us, minister to us, shepherd and king, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.